This is the Nietzsche Podcast. So this is going to be the culmination of everything we've talked about in the past few episodes, and in in some way, really, throughout the entire podcast. This is the final piece of the puzzle in explaining Nietzsche's differences from Schopenhauer. But in the course of answering this question, hopefully you'll gain some insight into the central dichotomy, as I see it, that Nietzsche establishes in his work, and the central opposition with which he concerns himself. Um, And this opposition is central here in this issue also of explaining both why Nietzsche was attracted to Schopenhauer and why he had to overcome Schopenhauer. And this opposition is stated right in the title of the episode, Dionysus versus the Crucified. The core question we started out with at the beginning of the first Schopenhauer episode was how the no-saying Schopenhauer could inspire the yes-saying Nietzsche. How does a philosopher who concludes that life is not worth living inspire the philosopher who says, not only is life worth living, it's worth living exactly the same way a thousand, a million, an endless number of times over? And so to answer this question... I've brought in with me uh, selections, mainly just from two sections of Nietzsche's work, where he addresses um, two labels that have been applied to him, and which were also applied to Schopenhauer, and these are Romanticism and Pessimism, which, in a sense, these are sort of the subtopics of the episode. Um, But this is where Nietzsche explains, in his own words, how he overcame Romanticism and pessimism, or rather, how he reinterpreted romanticism and pessimism, and thus took his view beyond the view of Schopenhauer, and um, to a lesser extent, he also talks about the views of Wagner. Um, If we'll remember briefly, in the last episode about the essay entitled Schopenhauer as Educator, we talked about how Nietzsche saw in Schopenhauer a solitary thinker in the mold of Heraclitus, who sought for truths based on his own inner demands and his own subjective experience and rejected the contemporary wisdom, someone who rejected um, even, you know, the institutional learning and the scholars. And so perhaps Schopenhauer was this inspiration for Nietzsche's leaving academia to pursue the philosophical life on his own. Um, In that essay, Nietzsche says Schopenhauer fulfilled the role of the heroic philosopher who is willing to be an enemy to his own happiness in the pursuit of truth and to strive endlessly toward the potential of what mankind could be. Schopenhauer leads the way to becoming a true man, a no longer animal man, because Schopenhauer wrote of a world in which man was the zenith of nature, and the one being who can you know, represent the world as will in such a way as to make its negation possible. In other words, for man to be liberated from the blind striving that is the character of all natural beings. Nietzsche searched in the wake of Schopenhauer for this means of continuing in the heroic tradition, seeking a way by which man might be elevated beyond the world of the blindly striving will. So Nietzsche is therefore concerned with that same question of how man might be elevated. Um, And his outlook is that for the majority of the species, as we discussed in that episode, The beast has not been cast out at all, but that most people still follow their blind impulses and simply author a conscious fiction in the wake of their deeds. 
But on the other hand, Nietzsche sees that there are these extraordinary types that can serve as an example to bring us closer to realizing the meaning of nature, as he puts it. And those types are the artist, saint, and philosopher. Um, the, you know, the, the philosopher is a higher type because by means of philosophy, the world can be represented in the form of concepts, which allows her man to use reason instead of following blind impulse. As for the artist in, you know, the Schopenhauerian artistic theory, for example, by means of artistic expression, we can become this clear mirror reflecting the phenomenon of the world. And so you can become this willless subject of knowing. And finally, there's the example of the saint who shows the way through discipline and self-abnegation. And, you know, the saint through his asceticism um, gives us the example of someone who's no longer subject to these blind impulses yet again. But alas, following these untimely meditations essays in which these ideas are all put forward, Nietzsche goes on to write as the culmination of his early philosophy, Human All Too Human, which as the title implies, is less of a call for man to be elevated beyond the natural world, but rather it, it includes a tacit acceptance of the purely naturalistic origin of mankind. And the fact that even among the great specimens of mankind, uh, Nietzsche finds the greatest among them merely human, all too human. And so this is why the problem persists for Nietzsche um, during this more critical period of his philosophy, which is sometimes called the free spirit period or the middle period, um, beginning with human, all too human, books one and two, and then the wanderer and his shadow, the dawn, and finally the gay science. And, um, during this time, we see Nietzsche's penetrating criticisms of religion, of philosophy, of the popular morality, undermine all of these metaphysical claims of man's transcendent value. And that's why God is killed in the process. This period in Nietzsche's philosophy, uh, as we went over, it culminates in the death of God, which happens in uh, the gay science. After the death of God, all values are undermined. Nothing has transcendent value any longer. And so we have this problem in Nietzsche's philosophy then. Still, we have his desire to see mankind elevated, which means for man to become something beyond ourselves, which is so important because Nietzsche sees that as the natural and healthy thing for all living things. We have to continue becoming, continue to grow and transform. And yet, how can mankind do this? Um, you know, as we discussed about the untimely meditations period, he first considers the sincere men who have cast out the beast, the artist, the saint, and philosopher. So practically speaking, this means we look to certain figures like Plato or Goethe or Socrates or Caesar or Jesus and use their example to carry us forward. But so first of all, I'll say that that's a big reason why we would place Nietzsche as a romantic during this period or why many people do, because this is a view of history as non-progressive. The past isn't categorically, quote-unquote, better than the present, but it's because there's not a linear progression of man's betterment that happens uh, across time. You know, it's not man doesn't become better because of an increase, collective increase in man's intellect or in technology or in social advancement. Um, Nietzsche doesn't believe in that. And then in theory, you could have, quote-unquote, better societies that existed 3,000 years ago just as easily as one could exist 3,000 years from now. So perhaps the zenith of culture happened a long time ago and nothing we experience will ever be as good. That's at least possible. 
And so in Nietzsche's view, for example, Greek culture far eclipsed the German culture of his time, and in fact eclipsed all of modernity and all European culture, or what passed for culture. And so Nietzsche is in agreement with Schopenhauer here. He believes that the great people and great cultures can happen at any time and at any age, because if we remember, Schopenhauer writes uh, that genius he talks about genius in much the same way that Nietzsche does. Genius is something which can strike at any point in history, in any society. So rather than casting our hopes into the future of mankind, the idea here is we would look to peoples and cultures who have already existed, because those are the examples we have access to. And um, the maxim to sum up this attitude, um, as we discussed, is in the past episode is what could 10 or 20 more years teach us that the lives of all the great people throughout history has not already taught us. And so this creates a romantic attitude, rejection of world historical progress, looking to the past as a model for behavior, primacy of the senses and the passions, and the desire to reconcile mankind to nature or somehow incorporate man into a naturalistic outlook on morality. And so Nietzsche in his early period has at least some form of agreement with all of these principles. But, of course, Nietzsche differs with Schopenhauer in what genius is and what the goal of a person's life should ultimately be. Schopenhauer pres- provides an example again to cast out the beast, to rise above, above uh, blind willing. His aim is the negation of the will. But Nietzsche does not accept that answer. He doesn't accept... Um, the Christian answer of man's elevation over the animals either. But the tension remains because Nietzsche has this conviction. Man must be aimed at the horizon, at becoming something new, at self-overcoming. He's already committed to that conviction in his past writing that knowledge which doesn't serve life, which doesn't serve the growth into something better, is worthless. Um, And so just as a hint at where this is going, I mean, Nietzsche's eventual great insight is that one does not elevate man, that is, make mankind a more fully realized, more perfect expression of nature by casting out the beast. Nietzsche holds to the idea of producing a vision of how mankind can be uplifted, but he changes his conception of what man is and how man can be lifted up. And the reason he changes this view is because it, it, it largely has to do with the conclusion of his critical period with the death of God and the realization within his philosophical project of all that is all too human within mankind. And indeed, you know, all that is all too human within Nietzsche's higher man. That it wasn't that Napoleon or Goethe or Caesar or Shakespeare cast out man's inner beast. No, rather they harness the power of the beast, you could put it. One Another way of talking about this, of how Nietzsche eventually overcame Schopenhauer, is through the discovery of will to power. Um, and that's something we talked about will to power in episode 14 um, extensively. But there's another way of talking about what is essentially the same discovery in terms that are a little more poetic. And that's the discovery of the Dionysian. And these are the terms Nietzsche uses in the first passage that we'll look at today. And the aphorism is called What is Romanticism? It's in the Gay Science Book 5, aphorism 370. First, a little, just a little more context, because Book 5 of the Gay Science was added to the edition published in 1887. So this is not written during the time the rest of the Gay Science was written. In fact, 
um, both of the passages we're looking at today are from around the same time. One is from 1887, this one, the next one is from 1886. So it's a period where Nietzsche is looking back at his more experimental, critical period, his transition from the you know, 1870s to the early 1880s during his time, throughout which he's reassessing what he was doing, what he's thinking, how he's responding to his influences. And so this is a long aphorism, so we're going to take it in chunks with my commentary in between, and hopefully it'll help make clear a lot of what I've been laying out to lead up to it. So without further ado, the passage, quote, What is Romanticism? It will be remembered, perhaps, at least among my friends, that at first I assailed the modern world with some gross errors and exaggerations, but at any rate, with hope in my heart. I recognized, who knows from what personal experiences, the philosophical pessimism of the 19th century as the symptom of a higher power of thought, a more daring courage and a more triumphant plenitude of life than had been characteristic of the 18th century, the age of Hume, Kant, Condillac, and the sensualists so that the tragic view of things seemed to me the peculiar luxury of our culture, its most precious, noble, and dangerous mode of prodigality, but nevertheless, in view of its overflowing wealth, a justifiable luxury. In the same way, I interpreted for myself German music as the expression of a Dionysian power in the German soul. I thought I heard in it the earthquake, by means of which a primeval force that had been imprisoned for ages was finally finding vent, indifferent as to whether all that usually calls itself culture was thereby made to totter. It is obvious that I then misunderstood what constitutes the veritable character, both of philosophical pessimism and of German music, namely, their romanticism." End quote. So to pause here, I think that's pretty easy to understand at this, up to this point. Nietzsche felt there was something pent up in European society and culture waiting to be released, waiting to vent, and he says, like an eruption. And he thought he saw this in Romanticism. What is this force? Why would Nietzsche see this force in Romanticism? Is the, sort of the question. And that, so that force is the Dionysian, as he says. It's an artistic force that Nietzsche claims to have discovered in The Birth of Tragedy. So in that book, Nietzsche argues that Greek tragedy as an art form, which you know, was in its time the pinnacle of Greek society and art and culture, um, in which, you know, heroic characters meet tragic ends in a story which is dramatized by actors and accompanied by a chorus. Um, Nietzsche believes that, in contrast to Apollo, who represented the plastic arts, the visual arts, Dionysus represented the artistic forces of music, so these are Greek gods, but Nietzsche believes they had symbolic importance in the Greek mind and that they, they came together to create Greek tragedy. So he believes that Apollo represented the Greek understanding of individuation, of representing the world in an objectified form to the knowing subject. So accordingly, Apollo stands for dreams, self-reflection, and artistic creation. But Dionysus is another kind of artistic experience entirely the experience of losing oneself rather than of creating oneself. Ego death, dissolving back into the primordial unity. Release from the tension of being a man. And so Dionysus was represented as a god of wine. He's the god of the Athenian mystery cults. 
he's sometimes you know represented surrounded by satyrs you know his uh these beings which are half man and half beast sometimes he himself has um you know bull's horns or ram's horns and uh at the greek mystery plays through dramatization and through dance and song religious truths were supposedly revealed truths about the cycles of life about nature about the divine while the contemporary views of art in Nietzsche's time tended to emphasize the Apollinean aspect of the arts. Nietzsche thinks there's this other tendency in art, this other artistic force which is ignored, which he identifies with the Dionysian. And so that's one of the great contributions of Birth of Tragedy is this new um, way of understanding and categorizing different types of art, which of course all classifications and categorizations are just arbitrary, but by making those distinctions, you can learn things, you can bring things to light. And so in Birth of Tragedy, Nietzsche brings that Dionysian element of art to light. One reason why that's useful is that Nietzsche believed, in fact, that European society was deprived of the Dionysian because the European mind had been so long dominated by the Christian moral ideology, whereas the Dionysian mystery cults gave a voice to the animal and man, the desire to collapse back into the bestial, to lose oneself, to abandon the project of civilization and self-knowledge. Christianity, on the other hand, wants to extirpate those urges. So if you remember the episode we talked about on the body and about the master and slave morality, and also to some extent the episode on will to power, there's a difference between spiritualizing a drive or emasculating it. Emasculating it is the Christian approach. If thy eye offend thee, pluck it out. The Dionysian is that which had been plucked out of the European culture. And Nietzsche thinks this is what made us pathological to some extent, unbalanced and divided in many respects, turned against ourselves and so on. He wishes we could once again learn to spiritualize the Dionysian. And so that's why... In his romanticism, he sees this great opportunity, or, or rather in the whole romantic movement uh, that he comes to identify with, the possibility of the spiritualization of the animal side, the passionate side, the non-self-reflective side of mankind. Uh, we might also broadly correlate this with the unconsciousness, with the violent and sexual impulses, which are necessarily suppressed so that we can all live in civilization. Um, but rather than plucking this element out, Nietzsche thinks we need to revive it and give it its place within our culture in a healthy manner, where we perhaps do as the Greeks did, put the expression of the beast within man into a ritual context, perhaps make it sacred, and so on. And so he sees the possibility for this in how Wagner was, you know, supposedly reviving the spirit of the old Germanic pagans, and... Um, and so on and so forth. And so Nietzsche continues with the passage, which I'll return to reading. And he starts the next paragraph by posing the same question again, as he did at the beginning. So, quote, What is romanticism? Every art and every philosophy may be regarded as a healing and helping appliance in the service of growing, struggling life. They always presuppose suffering and sufferers. But there are two kinds of sufferers. On the one hand, those that suffer from overflowing vitality, who need Dionysian art and require a tragic view and insight into life. 
and on the other hand, those who suffer from reduced vitality, who seek repose, quietness, calm seas, and deliverance from themselves through art or knowledge, or else intoxication, spasm, bewilderment, and madness. All romanticism in art and knowledge responds to the twofold craving of the latter. To them, Schopenhauer, as well as Wagner, responded and responds to name those most celebrated and decided romanticists who were then misunderstood by me, not, however, to their disadvantage, as may be reasonably conceded to me. The being richest in overflowing vitality, the Dionysian god and man, may not only allow himself the spectacle of the horrible and the questionable, but even the fearful deed itself, and all the luxury of destruction, disorganization, and negation. With him, evil, senselessness, and ugliness seem as it were licensed, in consequence of the overflowing plenitude of procreative fructifying power, which can convert every desert into a luxuriant orchard. Conversely, the greatest sufferer, the man poorest in vitality, would have most need of a mildness, peace and kindliness in thought and action. He would need, if possible, a god who is specially a god of the sick, a savior. Similarly, he would have need of logic. The abstract intelligibility of existence for logic soothes and gives confidence. In short, he would need a certain warm, fear-dispelling narrowness and imprisonment within optimistic horizons." End quote. So here Nietzsche is explaining how the romanticists that he took his fire from, Schopenhauer and Wagner, were not who he thought they were, at least in his account of things here. To put it bluntly, one either needs romanticism because they're looking for some means of growing, struggling forward to new and better things, or because they're weary and they want to put an end to all their struggling. And he says that all romanticism in art and thought has suffered from the fact that it's so far has been pervaded by those who are weak and declining, who are looking to nature in order to find peace and repose and stop struggling. Those who find in an idyllic past a, a, a rest from all the strife, strife and stress of modernity. These kinds of romanticists are, practically speaking, prone to look for an escape from the world, and they find it either through nature or asceticism or through a return to past beliefs and values, or a more primitive way of life. And even if such things aren't possible, to at least, you know, they come to at least regard a time before modernity as naive and simpler and more authentic. And so Nietzsche, at the end of the passage we just looked at, uh, or that particular paragraph of it, he draws a parallel to Christianity, suggesting that such people become prone to finding hope in a savior figure and a god of the sick and weak. So again, this is Nietzsche in 1887, retrospectively looking back on his influences of Wagner and Schopenhauer. If, if we flash back just briefly to what he was writing around the time when Nietzsche was making the shift in his viewpoint, uh, in the preface to the second book of Human All to Human, Nietzsche writes, quote, Richard Wagner, who seemed all-conquering, was in reality only a decayed and despairing romantic. He suddenly collapsed, helpless and broken before the Christian cross. Uh, end quote. So Wagner eventually succumbs to Christianity. Schopenhauer, as we all know, for all the fascinating threads entertained by his philosophy, 
Um, you know, all the interesting framing of things, his radical take on the Kantian epistemology and his views on art and so on. Where does he end up? For all intents and purposes, as a Buddhist, what Buddhism and Christianity have in common is the rejection of the physical world with all the sinfulness of its desires and earthly concerns and the promise of liberation from it all. In the Buddhist case, nirvana, in the Christian case, heaven, in both cases, a world beyond and a savior leading the way, shepherding the suffering thinker who's become weighted down by all the suffering of the world, shepherding, shepherding them off into emancipation, uh, emancipation from life. And so this is what all romanticism was doing, Nietzsche claimed. He, he claimed that he misunderstood that kind of thinking. He mistook it for what he was looking for or what he was looking to romanticism to do for him as a means of inspiring life, developing life, in the same way that we might think about Nietzsche's idea of monumental history, using the historical examples as a furtherance to life. And, um, and Nietzsche also says it was to their benefit that he misunderstood Wagner and Schopenhauer. So there's some famous um, egotistical Nietzschean humor for you. But back to the passage in The Gay Science, What is Romanticism? Quote, In this manner, I gradually began to understand Epicurus, the opposite of a Dionysian pessimist. In a similar way, also the Christian, who is in fact only a type of Epicurean, and like him, essentially a romanticist. And my vision has always become keener, and tracing that most difficult and insidious of all forms of retrospective inference in which most mistakes have been made, the inference from the work to its author, from the deed to its doer, from the ideal to him who needs it, from every mode of thinking and valuing to the imperative want behind it. In regard to all aesthetic values, I now avail myself of this radical distinction. I ask in every single case, has hunger or superfluity become creative here? At the outset, another distinction might seem to recommend itself more. It is far more conspicuous, namely to have in view whether the desire for rigidity, for perpetuation, for being is the cause of creating, or the desire for destruction, for change, for the new, for the future, for becoming. But when looked at more carefully, both these kinds of desire prove themselves ambiguous and are explicable precisely according to the before-mentioned and, as it seems to me, rightly preferred scheme. The desire for destruction, change, and becoming may be the expression of overflowing power, pregnant with futurity. My terminus for this is, of course, the word Dionysian. But it may also be the hatred of the ill-constituted, destitute, and unfortunate, which destroys and must destroy because the enduring, yea, all that endures, in fact, all being, excites and provokes it. To understand this emotion, we have but to look closely at our anarchists, end quote. That's another, I think, bit ironical or sarcastic remark there at the end. And so this passage is extraordinarily interesting for understanding how the idea of the Dionysian developed beyond the understanding of the Dionysian as Nietzsche writes about it in Birth of Tragedy. When Nietzsche writes about Dionysus and Birth of Tragedy at that time, um, he's a philologist. The book itself straddles the border between philosophy and philology. 
but Nietzsche still writes more or less entirely within the framework of Dionysus as a phenomenon in Greek culture, and specifically within Greek artistic expression, within dramatic tragedy, but perhaps, you know, a phenomenon we can learn from in the modern day. You know, specifically, maybe we can gain insights about art, but he is talking about a phenomenon in Greek culture. But here in this passage, what is Romanticism? The Dionysian has a valuation attached to it, so he's talking about it in a different sense. Now, Nietzsche would most likely claim this is not a moral valuation, but he is correlating the Dionysian with something healthy, and that is he correlates it with becoming and he opposes it um, to the world conceived of instead as being. Another way of conceiving of this dichotomy he lays out, he poses in, in the question he asks, is this an, exp an expression of hunger or superfluity? So are you employing your ideas, your beliefs, your values in such a way that you are seeking new struggles, new growth, new becoming? And yes, in the process of this, the destruction of the old, of that which is decaying uh, or weak. And this could all be referential, by the way, to yourself, something what destroying which is decaying and weak inside you and promoting some sort of new growth or new struggle that you can take on to become something new and better. So are your beliefs, are your beliefs and values pushing you forward in that sort of process? Or are your beliefs more in line with the world as being, as something static and unchanging, merely a way of rigidifying your way of life, and in fact, rigidifying your identity. So for example, someone could wish for a return to nature. Uh, and you could then pose the question, are you wishing for a return to nature in the form of striking out into the frontier and surviving on your own? Surviving on your own with or with a small group, you know, against the elements, struggling against the harshness of nature, and thus becoming something greater than you were by developing new skills and being forged in the heat of that? <laughs> or do you wish to return to nature because, you know, you, you're entertaining the fantasy of returning to the Garden of Eden, repose from life? You, I've drank too deep from the cup of life. Is that what, what is driving this? So Nietzsche poses that question that, that at the beginning that what's important to him is uh, the underlying nature which is driving forward this uh, surface level expression of ideas. So, you know, that's why he says he's looking, um, look at peeking behind every mode of thinking and valuing to the imperative want that is behind it and asking, you know, is this an expression of hunger or superfluity? But... So again, though, notice the dichotomy, the one that we mentioned at the very beginning that he is shaping here. He ties the Dionysian to the healthy, the struggling, life-affirming, world as becoming. Did you notice anyone or anything in that passage that we just read that's connected to the sick, the dying, life-denying, the world as, as being? He says the opposite of a Dionysian pessimist is the Christian, and which he then does connect to Epicurus. Um, we'll talk about Epicurus in a later episode, because uh, it's too much to bring him into this here. But just briefly, he was a negative hedonist, a 
and his moral outlook, who imagined a return to a simple, you know, country existence in a small fraternal community, and Nietzsche here ties him to the Christian version of Romanticism. So the important dichotomy here then is not Apollo contrasted with Dionysus as Nietzsche did in Birth of Tragedy. That was an earlier dialectic that Nietzsche explored and about which he mostly made descriptive statements. Here the contrast doesn't involve Apollo. Um, underlying these two contrasting worldviews are the Dionysian and the Christian. So um, back to the text, quote, The will to perpetuation, or will to immortalize, requires equally a double interpretation. It may on the one hand proceed from gratitude and love. Art of this origin will always be an art of apotheosis, perhaps dithyrambic, as with Rubens, mocking divinely, as with Hafiz, or clear and kind-hearted, as with Goethe, and spreading a Homeric brightness and glory over everything. In this case, I speak of Apollinean art. It may also, however, be the tyrannical will of a sorely suffering, struggling, or tortured being who would like to stamp his most personal, individual, and narrow characteristics, the very idiosyncrasy of his suffering as an obligatory law and constraint on others who, as it were, takes revenge on all things and that he imprints, enforces, and brands his image, the image of his torture, upon them. The latter is romantic pessimism in its most extreme form, whether it be as Schopenhauerian will philosophy or as Wagnerian music. Romantic pessimism, the last great event in the destiny of our civilization, that there may be quite a different kind of pessimism, a classical pessimism. This presentiment and vision belongs to me, as something inseparable from me, as my proprium and ipsissimum, only that the word classical is repugnant to my ears. It has become far too worn, too indefinite and indistinguishable. I call that pessimism of the future, for it is coming, I see it coming, Dionysian pessimism, end quote. And so here we have the implicit association of pessimism with romanticism once again. These are overlapping concepts. He even combines these two terms to discuss the Schopenhauerian will philosophy and Wagnerian music, romantic pessimism in the most extreme form. And, um, and here, you know, those are two mentors of Nietzsche. And here he is speaking of their romanticism as of the negative, sick world as being form of romanticism. And notice he includes here the Apollinian. He brings that into this analysis, Apollinian art in modern times. He mentions Goethe in this respect, for example, which makes perfect sense given his comments on Goethe and Schopenhauer as educator. Remember that Goethe is the contemplative man. Here he says he's clear and kind-hearted and casts a Homeric brightness over everything. Um, and, you know, I, I think he kind of implies yet again with the Apollinian, it could be coming from a place of superfluity or from hunger, as he puts it, from uh, from exhaustion or from an excess of life. It could come from either one. But to look at the contrast, if Wagner and Schopenhauer represent not the Dionysian force in art, but the Christian, or in Schopenhauer's case, Buddhist, although Nietzsche thinks these two religions are very similar in their core aspects, then the Dionysian force that Nietzsche believed he saw in Schopenhauer and Wagner was not there. 
That's what he's telling us in this passage. They were romantics, yes, but remember Wagner collapses before the Christian cross in Nietzsche's view by capitulating to German, you know, Lutheran identitarianism. And he, Wagner ultimately he tries to use the pagan stories not as a source of the Dionysian, but as a way to rejuvenate the Christian worldview. So of the examples Nietzsche sees in art and philosophy, he sees some of the Apollinean types and he sees some of the romantics, but they're types who nevertheless represent the recapitulation to the Christian desire to return to the garden rather than anything Dionysian. So the return to the Dionysian impulse, the world as becoming rather than being, the desire to transform and overcome and affirm life all in one, that's all associated with the Dionysian in this passage, and yet it's not there. Nietzsche does not see it in current culture. It's something yet to come. And so to sum up the whole passage, um, the Dionysian, something Nietzsche discovered in Birth of Tragedy, but which came to mean something different and more broad to Nietzsche in his later work. But the thread that defines the Dionysian and all its incarnations in Nietzsche's writing and what it always represents it, no matter where he talks about it, it's the celebration or release of the animal side of man, or put another way, a release for our all too human. Because, you know, by now it should be clear the secret of just why it is that man is human, all too human, is because there's so much in us that is animal. And that's this observation that man still has the beast within that's continually ignored. We're hindered in our development in overcoming our old errors of thought when we continue to look away from this fact, to willfully ignore it, and imagine ourselves as beings that did not arise from nature but were dropped down into it to, to have this belief in our own permanence of character and permanence of the human condition. And so the Dionysian represents the proper integration of the animal with the, the, the rational mind out of the recognition that it is the animal. That is to say, the body and its drives, the blind willing impulse, that is the driving force of life. And that's the association he's making here. The reorientation of the body and the animal urges as sacred and the reason for our existence and putting the mind into the proper relationship with the bodily urges under that understanding. And this has to be done in some way that doesn't destroy the fruits of civilization. So, you know, destructive as this force of the Dionysian may be, it's a destruction with the aim of transformation. It's not just destruction for the sake of destruction. And so what Nietzsche believed, he found, he found this in Schopenhauer and Wagner, but found that what their romanticism really meant was not like this at all. And from a certain perspective, it was the very opposite of what Nietzsche was looking for. And so, um, you know, as we've, We've said when Nietzsche digs into the heart of Schopenhauer's philosophy, it's a Buddhistic value structure that assesses life on the whole as of no value. And so that's why that's the reason for this tension. Schopenhauer's means of elevating man beyond the natural world is to make the natural world um, worthless. And man's value in his role as the negator of that very real world of ours with all its planets and star systems and galaxies, um, that's, that's where man's value is found, is in, is in that role. And through reason, through intellect, man rejects the physical. And so Schopenhauer's project, inspired as it is by Plato and Kant, is a continuation and indeed the culmination of that two worlds 
dualism of Western philosophy, which ex- exists just as much in the Indian religion as well, um, you know, in the form of the veil of Maya separating the material world from the pure undifferentiated world of the Brahman. Um, and so that having outlined all of that, that's giving you a taste more of uh, Schopenhauer's pessimism as we've looked at. And so um, now we're going to look at the second passage, which concerns itself with that pessimistic label, which uh, comes a year earlier in 1886. Now, Nietzsche certainly seems to have a pessimistic aspect to him, just as he seemed, at least for some point in his career, to have a, a romantic aspect. But we must understand that the classification of Nietzsche as a pessimist has a greater implication for Nietzsche's philosophical project, because while Nietzsche only really identified with romanticism for a certain period of his work during early, you know, his early days, Nietzsche is sometimes called a pessimist as a description of his work as a whole. And so we've seen in the last passage how Nietzsche rejected Schopenhauer in one dimension. He rejected Schopenhauer's romanticism by arguing that what he was looking for in romanticism he found to be ultimately opposed to Schopenhauer's project. But what about that second dimension of pessimism? And the short answer is that Nietzsche also rejects that. But again, it's interesting the way in which he comes to reject Schopenhauer in this regard. And so this is from Nietzsche's 1886 preface to The Birth of Tragedy. And while the book Birth of Tragedy has certainly been criticized by many, including Nietzsche himself, as being raw, immature, um, at times overly effusive, the preface that he added later for the second publication, more than 10 years after the fact, has been called by Kaufman, among others, one of the greatest productions from Nietzsche's hand. The preface is subtitled An Attempt at Self-Criticism, and it reads as just that. And again, this is Nietzsche commenting years later on his own intellectual development that was happening in the 1870s and early 1880s. The wonderful thing about this uh, preface, we don't have to cover Birth of Tragedy first to understand it, because Nietzsche does a good job of summarizing the ideas that it contains, and because he talks about the issues he was wrestling with in the preface, um, in terms that are very broad and abstract, um, he's talking about what the underlying symbolic conflict within him was when he wrote Birth of Tragedy. Um, it's not the direct subject of the text, but something that's incidentally talked about throughout in a word, science. So Nietzsche writes in this preface, quote, What I then got hold of, something frightful and dangerous, problem with horns, but not necessarily a bull, in any case a new problem. Today I should say that it was the problem of science itself, science considered for the first time as problematic, questionable." End quote. So, to explain this, many of the biggest figures in German philosophy, Kant, Hegel, pretty much all the neo-Kantians, express their philosophical ideas as a kind of science or as a framework of reason through which science can be contextualized and understood. Um, Kant, for example, argued in one of his later essays that philosophy needed to be established as one of the uppermost faculties of the German university system. And broadly speaking, this is because philosophy must be under, understood as the foundation which undergirds all science. And for centuries and even millennia before this, philosophy was more or less inseparable from science with most philosophical figures contributing works, 
you know, not merely in metaphysics, but also sometimes in physics and in mathematics and the other sciences. And this was all included under the banner of philosophy, whether it was natural philosophy or dialectic philosophy. And, um, you know, you might also remember from episode five, when we looked at Nietzsche's lectures on the pre-Platonic philosophers, Nietzsche himself more or less understood science as coming into being hand in hand with the development of philosophy. It's the act of doing philosophy that helps us make the leap from religion into the representation of universal existence with abstract concepts. And what that does is create the possibility of approaching the world scientifically. If we can make these representations separate from any one particular phenomenon, we can then begin to study the world in a truly scientific manner. We can derive general principles from studying specific phenomena, which is, put simply, empiricism. But here Nietzsche says that he's the first to tackle this new problem, or he's the first to regard this development, this very development of science itself, as problematic. And this is his underlying criticism in Birth of Tragedy revealed to us. And it's very telling that even at this early date, this underlying question that he's wrestling with, calling into question the value of science relative to its dangers, it basically opens the way to many of Nietzsche's later developments in thought, such as his criticisms of philosophers and beyond good and evil. Um, we're talking about the congenital defect of philosophers and human all too human. While Nietzsche is known for being a staunch critic of Christianity, what's interesting is that he identifies the first truly philosophical question that he wrestled with is a criticism of science. And so his criticism of Christianity and criticism of science are actually related. And this is because in Birth of Tragedy, Nietzsche had already identified the true opposition to the Dionysian, um, which is not Apollo, but Socrates, more specifically Euripides. But um, we'll get to that in a moment. Socrates is what Nietzsche calls the mystagogue of science. He's a radical skeptic. He challenges the divine assumptions of the community and, in fact, calls its every sacred value into question. And furthermore, he's willing to die, to be put to death for his truths. And so in, 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 in doing so, in taking his hemlock, he alludes to the idea that life is merely a long illness. And so this is the portrait of a figure who's willing to sacrifice life at the altar of truth. Um, because, you know, irrational as they were, if those moral values uh, which the people hold are essential to their existence, which Nietzsche believed that they were, Socrates is actually then doing great harm to the community by challenging or questioning these beliefs. Socrates is what Nietzsche called absurdly rational. He is unartistic and believes that virtue is only undermined by artistic expression. He's the theoretical man, as Nietzsche calls him, and in the text he opposes the theoretic against the tragic. Theoretic against the tragic is really the first uh, formulation of the crucified. It would be, I guess, in that order, the crucified versus uh, Dionysus. But um, So... In Birth of Tragedy, there, he's talking about how there's artistic Greek tragedy, this force in their society that allows for the Dionysian to be expressed and sacralized. Then, in opposition to that, there's Socrates, the theoretical man, who looks at the Dionysian and only sees what is irrational, what is unvirtuous, what is a danger to the rational order of society. 
Then comes Euripides, a playwright who, inspired by Socrates, creates the genre of new Attic comedy. So rather than tragedy, where you're portraying larger-than-life heroes, people who, out of great passion, strive and struggle and suffer and inevitably die due to some tragic all-too-human flaw, in short, a dramatic representation that makes sacred what is all-too-human, which, another way of saying, what is animal within us. Euripides writes comedies in which the human condition can be contained within a limited sphere of solvable problems, on the other hand. Euripides, in short, he creates a form of art which is fundamentally optimistic rather than tragic. And Nietzsche believes that this represents the excision of the Dionysian from art. And so Socrates is the root cause of this. He stands as this absurdly rational, anti-artistic figure in, in Birth of Tragedy. Uh, Nietzsche writes in this preface about the, quote, silent hostility with which Christianity was regarded in Birth of Tragedy. Um, but, I mean, everything that Socrates stands for in Birth of Tragedy, or rever rather everything that Socratism stands for, is not just what Nietzsche sees at the root of the scientific zeitgeist, but also the Christian moral zeitgeist within European culture. Um, this is because, as he says in the preface to Beyond Good and Evil, Christianity is Platonism for the people. Christianity is the natural conclusion of an ideology that rejects the Dionysian. If you attempt to excise the Dionysian to emasculate the animal impulses in mankind and call them evil and sinful, that inevitably eventually develops into a rejection of the physical world. One associates you know, one associates themselves entirely with the, the conscious mind as this disembodied thing, as an immortal soul. One rejects the urges of the flesh and feels ashamed of them, and life itself becomes a stifled, botched thing. To Nietzsche, that's where the theoretic, the war of the theoretic versus the tragic eventually leads. And so, it's a very different picture of the relationship between science and religion that we have in our modern times. But this is how the problem of science as Nietzsche sees it gives way to the problem of Christianity. The emergence of Socratism is the emergence of a worldview that rejects life in favor of truth and rejects art in favor of science. The emergence of Christianity is a later development, but it's the same pattern. The rejection of life in favor of truth the rejection of passion in favor of reason, the rejection of the worldly in favor of the otherworldly. And so um, Nietzsche writes in this 1886 preface to The Birth of Tragedy, quote, You will guess where the big question mark concerning the value of existence had thus been raised. Is pessimism necessarily a sign of decline, decay, degeneration, weary and weak instincts, as it once was in India, and now is to all appearances among us modern men and Europeans. Is there a pessimism of strength? An intellectual predilection for the hard, gruesome, evil, problematic aspect of existence, prompted by well-being, by overflowing health, by the fullness of existence? 
Is it perhaps possible to suffer precisely from overfulness, the sharp-eyed courage that tempts and attempts, that craves the frightful as the enemy, the worthy enemy, against whom one can test one's strength, from whom one can learn what it means to be frightened? What is the significance of the tragic myth among the Greeks of the best, the strongest, and most courageous period, and the tremendous phenomenon of the Dionysian, and born from it tragedy, and what might they signify? And again, that of which tragedy died, the Socratism of morality, the dialectics, frugality, and cheerfulness of the theoretical man. And now, might not this very Socratism be a sign of decline, or weariness, of infection, of the anarchical dissolution of the instincts, and the Greek cheerfulness of the later Greeks, merely the afterglow of the sunset? The Epicureans resolve against pessimism, a mere precaution for the afflicted? And science itself, our science. Indeed, what is the significance of all science, viewed as a symptom of life? For what, worse yet, whence all science? How now? Is the resolve to be so scientific about everything perhaps a kind of fear of, an escape from pessimism, a subtle last resort against truth, and, morally speaking, a sort of cowardice and falseness, amorally speaking, a ruse? Oh, Socrates, Socrates, was that perhaps your secret? Oh, enigmatic ironist, was that perhaps your irony? End quote. I believe I, I talked about that passage in the episode on Nietzsche versus Socrates as well. But after all we've talked about, I think it's fairly straightforward that Nietzsche saw the power of science, but also saw the danger of science, which is to say the danger of the sacralization of truth-seeking above all other values. The danger is that this truth-seeking impulse will saw off the Dionysian. And so might not the Socratism be a sign of weakness, an escape into this abstract world of logic, a means of staving off pessimism? Um, and notice the suggestion he makes in the passage. Is there a pessimism of strength? Which implies, of course, that there's a pessimism of weakness. And, you know, with this last dichotomy... <laughs> We get our final answer, I think, concerning Schopenhauer. And uh, he addresses Schopenhauer directly in the preface, where he writes, quote, What, after all, did Schopenhauer think of tragedy? That which bestows on everything tragic its peculiar elevating force, he says in World as Will and Representation, is the discovery that the world, that life, can never give real satisfaction, and hence is not worthy of our affection. This constitutes the tragic spirit. It leads to resignation. How differently Dionysus spoke to me. How far removed I was from all this resignationism. But there is something worse in this book, something I now regret, still more than that I obscured and spoiled Dionysian premonitions with Schopenhauerian formulations. End quote. Um, and something worse he's talking about in the book is... Uh, so he fears he spoiled Dionysus by uh, linking uh, the Dionysian too much to our modern problems or, or linking his understanding of the Dionysian and the Apollonian in light of our modern um, issues, 
modern than referring to. I mean, he he's basically talking about how he uh, he polluted the text with too much Wagnerianism. Is the short version, uh, and of course the uh, you know the other thing that he mentions that he he considered the Dionysian Apollinian in light of Schopenhauer's ideas on art. But more to the point. Schopenhauer more or less demonstrates in the section Nietzsche quotes from that his pessimism is the pessimism of weakness that Nietzsche was implying earlier. Schopenhauer does not look to tragedy as a means of enhancing life, but uh, out of weariness and a desire to be free of the suffering of life. He suggests that that's what tragedy entices us to do, to, uh, to come to reject life more easily, I suppose. And so, but we have our answer. Schopenhauer is a romantic, but his romantic need comes from a need to escape, a need for repose. He's a pessimist, but he's a pessimist of weakness rather than a pessimist of strength. To the extent that Nietzsche is either a romantic or a pessimist, it's the extent to which either can be brought into the service of life for the furthering and advancement of life. Schopenhauer an inspiration though he was as the solitary independent philosopher and as the romantic hero who stood in contradistinction to his age, he was ultimately, he didn't understand the need for the Dionysian impulse. Uh, and he ends up as a result giving in to the Christian impulse. You could say, you could say the Dionysian is what Nietzsche is looking for because this is what he sees as needed for the furtherance of life. It's the problem underlying his whole work in some sense, or this is how the problem has transformed and made itself more clear that he, he, he needs some means of incorporating the Dionysian into, uh, into our culture once again. Um, and Nietzsche elsewhere in the preface, he, he, called this Dionysian instinct within himself, he says that he experienced it as, quote, artistic and anti-Christian. And so he writes further, quote, what to call it? As a philologist and man of, man of words, I baptized it, not without taking some liberty, for who could claim to know the rightful name of the Antichrist? And the name of a Greek god, I called it Dionysian, end quote. And so that reveals the meaning of Nietzsche's rather straightforward statement elsewhere in Ecce Homo, that the dichotomy running throughout his entire work is Dionysus versus the crucified. Um, and this is the key that explains his overcoming of Schopenhauer. Romanticism and pessimism, these troublesome words that can mean a hundred things or nothing, depending on who is using them, these are only ideologies, or you could call them thought movements, and so there are superficial categories to Nietzsche. What matters to him is the inner content, the maxim or the valuation or the demand behind them as he sees it. And through this search for a pessimism of strength, the search for a romanticism that affirms life, Nietzsche discovers his fundamental difference with some among his most influential mentors, Schopenhauer, his philosophical mentor, and Wagner, a mentor he knew personally, whose friendship he once cherished and whose art and ideas move Nietzsche. Um, meanwhile, in other figures, such as Heraclitus, he discovers, and, and, and to some extent, Goethe, a very deep spiritual sense of agreement. Goethe, who's understood the limits of the theoretical life and the need for the Dionysian, as he expresses 
uh, these in, in different terms in Faust, or Heraclitus, who represented the world as becoming. You know, all of these figures I just mentioned, Schopenhauer, Wagner, Goethe, Heraclitus, these are all people Nietzsche admired and learned from. But Nietzsche came to evaluate all of these figures very differently um, in the end, once he took stock of them, according to this simple formula of Dionysus versus the crucified. And the question he poses is always whether the idea in question fosters life and leads to the furtherance of mankind. Is this a path to something greater? For all Schopenhauer's image of man provides in our quest for self-betterment, Schopenhauer himself must be overcome because he fails to understand the necessity of the Dionysian. And so without this life-giving element, he atrophies into a life-denier. And so that's not to say that Schopenhauer represents, quote-unquote, the crucified in you know, his inner spirit, uh, but rather that Schopenhauer does not confront this opposition between the two. He doesn't provide this needed Dionysian element, and so therefore he has no defense against the, the the ideological force of the crucified, or however you want to put it. His philosophy cannot affirm life, and thus it must deny it. That's the inevitable end. And so I hope now you have a much, uh, <laughs> you have much more than merely a final episode on the relationship between Nietzsche and Schopenhauer, but perhaps a new perspective from which uh, to look at Nietzsche's philosophy. The recognition of the beast within as something that if properly reintegrated into mankind can be the thing that elevates us, or rather that the, the, the creation of a higher man, a more fully realized mankind, is actually not to be found by casting out the beast, and that the people who tried to do so, um, who tried to excise the Dionysian, who didn't understand uh, this relationship and the fact that the Dionysian is the source of life, the source of becoming and transformation within us, to put it in rather poetic and abstract terms, not understanding that uh, leads to life denial. And that's the overcoming of Schopenhauer. Um, so with everything we set up, I think for this Christmas season, we're naturally going to spend some episodes examining uh, Nietzsche's writing on Christianity, specifically the Antichrist. And we also shouldn't forget that the birthday of Dionysus is December 25th also. Dionysus also died and was resurrected, by the way, so there's a lot of parallels with Christ. So perhaps we'll do an episode looking more deeply into Dionysus um, or talk about some poems Nietzsche wrote inspired by him or something like that for Christmas. But all right, everyone, signing off. If you enjoyed the Nietzsche podcast or found it helpful, you can visit us and support the show at patreon.com slash untimely reflections. The link is in the description. Or just share the show with any of your friends that you think might enjoy it or on social media. Thank you for your support.